Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm your radio, radio show. I'm your radio, radio show. Hello there, everybody. This is Niall, and you're welcome to the Niall or Nine podcast. Yes, it is a slightly different uh, intro this week to denote that I'm on my own. Um, this week, Andrea is a very busy lady, and uh, so she's off doing other things this week. So I thought it'd be good this week to have a long-form chat with Una Malali, one of our pals, who um, has been on the podcast recently, but uh, is has a series of gigs coming up this week, uh, starting today, actually, in the National Concert Hall. Those gigs are part of the Refraction series, it's called Utopia, um, and there are a series of events happening this week, which a lot of them are about looking forward to what happens after this pandemic and imagining what art and the future looks like, what we are, want for ourselves. So the Utopia series is presented by Una Malali and Connor Habib, and the program includes a number of things. First of all, there is a podcast chat tonight called Everyone United, uh, bringing together Una's United Ireland, and then uh, Against Everyone with Connor Habib. A few other things I think most interesting to us, there is the Chill Out Room as a radical space uh, on Saturday at 10 a.m., uh, Kate Butler, Don Roscoe, and No Place Like Drone, uh, Plank's uh, new Sonic work. And then on Saturday, Strange Boy, Rebel Phoenix, uh, Say La Vida Mai, DJ Replay, Dermot, and Alicia Ray are uh, taken to the stage for Cypher, which will be, as it suggests, a kind of uh, freestyle cypher on stage in the National Concert Hall. So, yeah, and then uh, on Sunday, 24th of October, Utopia Murmuration is a kind of improvised uh, live thing, which which Una gets into as well, which is led by saxophonist Ben Castle, a shout out to Ben, um, and it, uh, musicians include St. Sisters, Gemma Doherty, Derry Farrell, uh, Izumi Kimiyura, uh, Rory Fears of And So I Watch From Afar and more. Uh, David Kitt is involved in that as well. He's doing since as we discuss. So, 
basically myself and Nuna just had a chat about, you know, what do we want from after two years of, nearly two years of gigs being closed? What, how has the pandemic uh, reshaped us? What has it left us wanting? So it's kind of a high level chat as opposed to talks about uh, specific restrictions or anything like that that's happening this week. We're not going to get into that. Because um, I think this is, you know, this is a higher brow <laughs> conversation than what's going on in the doll at the moment and, and uh, in government buildings. So obviously, uh, Andrea will be back next week and uh, with myself and... Uh, if you like what we are doing here and you like what 909 does in general, the podcast is my direct line to ask you to maybe consider throwing a few quid towards us. Patreon.com forward slash 909. I couldn't have done the last year and a half without uh, support from you guys. So that's Patreon.com forward slash 909. It is an absolute lifeline and it has been for me in the, since we started it maybe two and a half years ago. So do consider that. There is the Discord chat um, where a lot of uh, sound people are having talks about uh, music and TV and succession even. So, you know, it's all there. So I present my chat with Umalani that happened earlier this week. And uh, yeah, enjoy the 909 podcast. So Una, your Utopia series is basically looking at the future and thinking about the future in a way that, well, how how could we look at the, what's coming down the line and kind of reimagine what we need for ourselves now that we've had a couple of years of of thinking time <laughs> for ourselves. So how did you approach this for, uh, series, first of all, the National Concert Hall? So the Utopia series at the National Concert Hall, which is happening this week, kind of emerged from conversations that I was having with my friend Connor Habib, who is an amazing podcast called Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And at the outset of the pandemic, when all of the shit was really hitting the fan existentially for people in March, April, I had done this podcast episode for United Ireland talking about imagining a Dublin utopia and what that looked like or what that could look like and kind of coming back to this principle of, um, you know, where do you want to go back to? And if the existing places or systems or environment was inadequate, then how could you potentially reimagine a new one and a better one? And on the back of that, myself and Connor started talking loads about utopian processes and asking people, you know, what do you want? And we started this website called utopiaireland.ie, which we didn't really promote that much at all. We kind of put um, a a few artist friends kind of made these flyers for us and we kind of put them around the country, really. Mm. And all this kind of stuff started dropping into the inbox that was really inspiring. So in approaching the concert hall stuff, we were like, well, how does this idea of difference and newness and risk and futures and all that kind of stuff, how could that manifest in real life? So we kind of curated these very speculative risk-taking gigs, really. One of them is a hip-hop cipher that's happening on Saturday evening at 8 o'clock with Strange Boy, Rebel P, um, Alicia Ray, Celebi May, um, DJ Replay, And so that's like totally improvised. And then we have a big concert on the, well, loads of musicians playing a concert on the Sunday at at, at eight o'clock about called Murmuration. And that's totally like threshold crossing, improvised, unrehearsed, 
where you just get a load of musicians, David Kitt, Maykay, uh, Dave LaPabe from Gang of Youths, Rory Fires from So I Watch You From Afar, uh, Gemma Doherty from Saint Sister, Izumi Kimura, who's an amazing classical pianist, Darren Beckett, who's the drummer for Brandon Flowers Band, Ben Castle, um, Derry Farrell, and just all these kind of people who make completely different music and what would happen if you put them on the stage and what would emerge from that. So it's a real kind of risk, but I think it'll be really fun for the artists. But the going back to like the why, I was really worried that, oh, we also have this eight hour immersive kind of sound bath meditative kind of thing that Kate Butler and Don Roscoe, No Place Like Drone are doing on the Saturday, which is free. And you could just drop into the console at 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. and you can just hang out and listen to, you know, the amazing depths of their record collections. But the reason being was like, I was really scared as we emerge, you know, whatever, momentarily or permanently into live events and, and gigs and all that kind of stuff. Would what I really, really wanted and really, really missed be satisfying? Mm. Uh, or would I feel bereft? Because obviously everybody has changed like internally and the country has changed and the world has changed and all the industries have changed and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So in staging these shows, we were like, well, actually, if we do something really different and if we do something that people haven't seen before, that when you turn up, you may not feel that like, oh, but it wasn't as I thought of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So we're trying to do something totally speculative and improvised and, and make it kind of like a threshold crossing transitionary space that people who are really, really into music and into thinking differently will gain something different from, let's say, quote unquote, just going back to a gig. Although I also want to do that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I think getting back to the start of something again is or restarting something. Yeah, like I've been really feeling that the the idea that everything is changing or everything has changed in the last couple of years. And, you know, especially when you're maybe a bit older and you're like, well, you know, I went to a gig last week, uh, last Tuesday, for example, in the Button Factory, which was Flourish, one of the events that was on there. And uh, not that I felt old, but I definitely felt a bit older than some of the people there. And I was like, that's normal for me, because obviously I go to new music gigs all the time. But it was great to be there um, and it was great to experience that. And it was great to feel that. And I just missed I just missed that act of uh, of uh, experiencing art and music and live performance so much so on thursday on wednesday i went to night dances as part of the double oh yeah i saw that last friday yeah yeah and i really like it just moved me so much because it is it is exactly that thing it's one of the things that i've missed the most is you know the act of moving and the act of being in a space and being in a crowd and standing up and all that kind of stuff and it did feel like you know, uh, a contemporary dance poem or four dance poems were kind of embodying all of the desire that I had for these for myself in the next while in terms of getting out and feeling what it's like to be in the world again with other bodies closer to you than you have been for two years. And it it really did feel to me like, uh, well, first of all, it made me, I was quite, um, I wouldn't say despairing, but I'm, yeah, not, not far off. Like I was pretty 
feeling pretty desolate last week in terms of what's been going on at the moment and whether we will get back to that normality. But, you know, it just it was a reminder of like the power of of what a performance can do for you as a person, just being there um, and experiencing that. But it also felt like a very political act as well. Induced mm. the, the act of watching somebody else dance in a space, which we're currently not allowed to do. I'm getting a lot of background <laughs> on. There is a, a massive sweeping truck outside. <laughs> um, so just happened well, to happen least- right now. So. Yeah, well, I mean, this may be a tribute to night dances, uh, noise and drown uh, in the background. <laughs> what I found really interesting about night dances was that it was about energy, right? Like that that show was about so many things, but mm. it is about energy. And, you know, visceral is a term that's so overused in music journalism, but it really, really felt like you were just being met with this sound and this energy and this movement that was so opposite to the humdrum Hmm. uh low fucking lo-fi like just almost stoner haze of the pandemic you know this was just completely like you know grenading that um and and i really responded to that and i think you know it's 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 so weird i was talking to somebody about this the other day because it's something i've been thinking about so much um around that that thing of like being present at a live show where there's live art being performed or whatever. And um, I was talking to them about my experience and going to other voices last year, which we've, we've talked about and there was no audience and I was just down there to do a piece. So apart from the crew, I was the only person in the room and in the run up to, and obviously the gigs were being live streamed or whatever. So there was that kind of collective digital experience, but that wasn't uh, necessarily happening uh, as an audience experience. It wasn't happening at all as an audience experience in the church. And in the run up to going down to Dingle, I was like, I'm so looking forward to this. I cannot believe I'm going to see live music. This is going to like feed me and all this kind of stuff. And the gigs were fantastic and the performances were, you know, electric in particular, the For Those I Love set. However, something was happening with the transmission from the stage that really makes you kind of think about what it is to be at a gig in that the literal sound waves and the literal energy that was being transmitted because there was no audience there, it had nowhere to land. So you just had this kind of tension that was really dialed up and it really kind of made me realize how going to shows, of course, it's about seeing musicians that you love, respect, that you don't know, that you're waiting to be surprised or, or, or see what happens or, or to sing along. But really, unless there are, you know, receptors of that energy in the room to for it to land on and, and for it to open up and for them, those people to kind of provide this support net, this safety net and, and kind of support, something else happens. So I think that like, you know, it's a very trite thing to say, you know, we all want to come together again and blah, blah, blah. But even in the the physiology of it almost is very necessary. Mm. I was saying this to a, a, a friend who's who's an artist and they were kind of saying, yeah, when they first saw live music again and it was at some the filming of something. So they're one of they're just kind of there as, as to uh, to watch or as crew or something that's something kind of like stuck in their chest about it. And I think that's like a physiological thing when there aren't other people around to receive that energy. 
And I think that like, really when it comes to the gig thing, what we need are, you know, the diverse collection of strangers around us yeah. to that, that, you know, implicitly recognize us for being there and we recognize them and, and the sound waves come in and they land and they, you know, are transmitted through, you know, reaction or sweat or cheering or whatever, or just wandering around the space and not having that, no amount of like, you can literally do the academic exercise of seeing somebody play live on your own is mm. actually going to replace that. And that's the thing that I'm, I guess I'm concerned about um, if, if, if this goes on any longer, that, that feeling of feeling bereft. Like I, w- I was in Paris for September, was really lucky to be away for a month. And I went to see um, a concert in the Paris Philharmonie there, which is this amazing concert hall that's like turbo, the acoustics in it are like out of this world, like nothing is amplified and everything just sounds like you're in the middle of someone's fucking ear or something. It's incredible. And the orchestra, uh, this orchestra called Les Dissonances, which plays without a conductor, really interesting kind of non-hierarchical, empathic kind of orchestra. And they were playing Ride of Spring. And when they started playing, like the first notes, the room was packed, by the way, because of the the, um, regulations there are, you have to have your vaccination cert, runs a full capacity and you have to wear a mask for this particular seated show. So there was loads of people there. And when they started playing, like I actually just started crying, like the first few notes, because first of all, it was so beautiful, but actually it was because loads of people were hearing that it was so beautiful. Mm, And and I think there's, there's less credence given to, obviously so many arguments have been made about the economic arguments of live events coming back um, and, you know, what they're worth to the economy and also what they're worth to the people working in that industry and to the musician's sense of purpose and all of that kind of stuff. And people want to go and enjoy themselves. But I think that we're really missing something that is not just about connection. It's actually about really kind of feeling alive and having those, you know, whatever those sound waves are made up of missing from our uh, anatomy from our physical, from our nervous system is, has probably broken a lot of people's fucking brains. And, and, yeah. and, uh, that's how I felt anyway, I've just been feeling really, really bereft. So the, the utopia exercise in, in, in the concert hall is about something about like, well, let's do something different and push things forward in a different way and just fucking risk it and see what happens. Yeah. I totally understand that feeling. And especially with the physiological aspect of it, you think about like, you know, dubstep music and low bass and feeling that in your body. I did have that slight experience. Obviously I was seated at night dances when Mm. like Dio Fox does the music for the show. um, And he performs it with a band live on stage. And uh, there's a lot of that kind of crunching low end stuff and a lot of very deep bass. And I remember like sitting there and obviously it wasn't a full crowd, but there was a, a woman in front of me and every time the the beat like first kicked in, like she had a, an immediate reaction and you're like, yeah. And I really just remember feeling like it was so, it just felt like home, that kind of experience, that kind of like, yeah, when it hits your body, that's what it is. That's what you're missing. You're missing the, that physiological, that deeply, like hard to understand thing that happens when you're at in front of a PA and with other people sharing it. And it is, like you said, like you can't, 
you can't relay that to a government employee necessarily about, you know, the importance of that. And so you end up talking about your mental health and you end up talking about, you know, the economics of it and all that kind of stuff. But we are like, we really are missing that kind of shared experience and that, uh, yeah, the very physical aspects of that. Because I was up in, in Belfast for AVA Festival uh, a few weeks ago and that was obviously, you know, full cap outdoors, no masks. And it was like a glimpse into the future all of a sudden. It was like you're looking, you're you're in a, a crowd of people. There's people touching bodies off you. And it just, everything changes. And, it, and and like bodies in front of in front of music and through the speakers changes the sound and how it is and how it's perceived. And then combine that with lights and all that kind of stuff. And I think those, I've been really feeling actually that in the last while, what I've really wanted is is that kind of level of more like that very large, dirty kind of dynamic in terms of music. So you mentioned like Dino Fox, very much like industrial kind of tough, like rigid noise. And then, you know, that you mentioned for those I love there. So the over mono remix that they have of mm. um, of his song. And I've been really wanting that level of sonics, those kind of dirty sonics, as opposed to something really polite and nice. I, and I think that's a reaction to what's happened in the last couple of years as well, because this dull inertia that just has persisted for so long. And therefore you're just like, well, I want the opposite of that. I yeah, want, totally. I want- like you want to go out and listen, like I want to be in the bumper cars outside the oxygen dance warehouse again. <laughs> I'm like finding myself gravitating towards music that like, you know, I want to I want to go to like a hardcore trance night, yeah, you know, yeah, I want to yeah. go to like an early, you know, a uh, uh, midnight request line era fucking kabuki night. <laughs> you know, I want to go to I want to feel the music um, and, and yeah, and it's funny because the, you know, pilot gigs or whatever you want to call them you know, and, and the, the restrictions that people are working with, you know, it's very obvious that a certain uh, type of music with a certain type of tone and fidelity and all that kind of stuff was programmed for that stuff because people are just so worried about like, oh, we can't lash on something that'll have everyone ra- raving. So you have like kind of, yeah, music that is more, more just a bit uh, calmer, I suppose. And yeah, I'm kind of, I'm obviously into that, but like there's been a lot of you know, there's yeah. been a lot of Brian Eno in my gaff for the last <laughs> 19 months. Let's just say that. Well, I had that experience at IMA actually in Meadows Festival because I was DJing uh, in between the acts and uh, on the night that I was doing a Just Mustard were playing. Mm. And it was really like they're very loud band. And that was some, I was really pleased to see that because like I loved John Francis Flynn. It was my kind of that weekend I kind of discovered him in a way for me. You know, I had not seen him before. The album has just come out. And it was great, and uh, but there was something extra special about the combination of the very heavy, loud music uh, and the lights as well, which just can't be underestimated, especially when you haven't experienced it for so long. It's like, you know, it's proper transportative. It does take you places, and it does take you. What I'm, what you're saying around the the lights and stuff, I think, is really pertinent because production, you know, production value, and loads of people loads of my mates who went to the mother block party, which which I missed, unfortunately, but they're all talking about like, oh, the production was amazing. And like, that's another thing as well. Like you can get production values when something is filmed and you're watching it on your laptop, but you're just seeing, you know, 
a, a screen representation of the production values like and there have been really good ones obviously the other voices courage series and roisin murphy's gig and saint sister show like there's been loads of stuff that's actually been exciting to watch um but you're not experiencing the production value and so i'm really interested in i wonder what's going to emerge now because production um being moved forward as it has been so much over the past 20 years is a result of people you know working on their practice and when you haven't been able to do that at large festival sites or big arenas or whatever I'd be really interested to see what production kind of emerges like what has as devlin been doing for the past like mm. couple of years and where are those artists at because what I'm kind of seeing or what I'm finding and, and, and night dances is part of this as well, is that there seems to be a, a thing that is both liberated and caught up in the, you know, as a uh, kneecap say in their new tune, like golf a loop, like stuck in this loop, but still trying to like break free. And you're getting this kind of maelstrom quality to a lot of stuff. Whereas, I was thinking, oh, maybe like, um, you know, may, we obviously won't know the impact of this era for for a long time, but like, you know, maybe in 10, in five years, there'll just be like loads and loads of like bedroom producer albums that were kind of began, people began noodling away um, at home during this time. But now I'm like, oh, no, I don't think so. I think there's a as, as a kind of, a, you know, an apocalyptic, uh, transgressive, uh, almost avant-garde quality emerging from sonics and production that I think is going to come to pass that that might actually be quite dark you know mm. I don't think that we're going to really experience an incredible amount of um you know electric blanket type music and stuff I think I think people are actually it's kind of like uh, people trying to break out of like cellophane or something and they're bashing on the on the on the viscous of it and trying to burst out from this time. And that excites me because I like loud, dirty, chaotic stuff. Um, and we haven't allowed been, you know, we haven't been allowed to like roll around the place, licking the walls and like crowd surfing and whatever, just acting crazy. Um, but I also think that that's, you know, there's loads, there's so many pressure valves within us as well. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of scared to go back to clubs because I'm like, I do not know what's going to happen to me or how I'm going to behave because I was uh, equating this some the other day, like, you know, in the, like in a shitty disaster or not a shitty disaster, maybe a good disaster. Maybe. Let's take deep blue sea. <laughs> um and uh you know when the, the the flooding starts in a boat or an underwater shark research center for example <laughs> uh, and the little screws and nuts start like popping off the yeah, like yeah. the word thing. it's like bing 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 like i feel like every time i walk into a space that was made transgressive because of the right uh, the regulations around the pandemic and no longer is i feel like that's what's happening to me and i think i'm gonna have a massive issue with like control and boundaries <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a very natural reaction and that's the same way as like what we're talking about with like wanting that kind of, you know, dirty, kind of uh, angry, maybe, you know, uh, chaotic music as well. You want that for your life because you haven't had it for so long and you've been, you know, you've been very, you know, uh, set in your ways because you've had to be and and therefore, you know, the desire when things like 
open up a bit more, you'll be able to do those things. Like it'll be, it'll be, it'll feel like that. It'll feel like a whole new experience again. I would hope, I would hope it does. Yeah. It'll be like, um, what's it called? Is it Raumsprunge? The, the year that, um, young people in the Amish community are given to like go wild for a while and then decide whether or not they're, they go, return to their community. I feel like we're all going to be in that kind of headspace. So tread carefully as well, I would mm. say, because, um, it's a bit of a Friday night at a festival vibe. I think when people eventually go out and there's can be a tendency to, to forget that, uh, the marathon is not a sprint. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like myself and yourself have, uh, have experience in that. So I think somewhere in, in there, your, your body will be coded enough and your brain will be coded enough to know that you, uh, that that is the case, you know, you're not going to go. It's complete. really fucking optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I hope you're right. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> you know, I'm like, cause I'm looking at, you know, my calendar for the next week and a half and two weeks and I'm like, okay, if I get to go to all of these things, it's going to be so different. My life's going to be, but I'm also trying not to uh, uh, prescribe so much weight to that as well, because I think that, mm. that is like uh, going out on New Year's Eve where you're like, oh, this has to be the best night ever. Cause if you do that, then you're, you might get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, know. an, an expectations and anticipation have been so bulldozed this whole time you know that that the future has been made so short you know that it's literally like if you want to do something better do it in the next two weeks you don't know what's going to happen so yeah it's the expectations thing that was all you know as i was saying that was a motivation for these shows particularly the murmuration show on sunday that it's like i am worried if i go back to a regular gig now, I, I, I would imagine that the artists are, are in a completely different space as well, like all artists are. So that's why we were like, let's do something completely improvised and completely off, off the cuff and just see if these people, which of course they can because they're so talented, can create a concert in the moment over 90 minutes. So, yeah, I think that that'll give me some, some, some ideas and inspiration even myself to see how people handle that, that musical language over that time when when everything is up in the air, you know? Yeah. And so that's kind of a manifestation of that. Yeah. And with something like the murmuration show, like is everyone coming into it blind or is there like. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So Ben Castle, um, who's an amazing saxophonist and, and, and session musician is recorded with like everyone um, from Radiohead to like Kylie. Um, and he's was just doing some gigs with Gregory Porter, I think in the UK, he's the musical director. So he's kind of directing I suppose the 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 form, yeah. Um, and then David Kitt's going to be doing synths and electronics, and Rory Fires from and so watch on guitars, and Darren Beckett on drums. He's also an amazing uh, jazz drummer as well, and they're kind of creating this soundscape that other musicians uh, like May Kay and and Gemma Doherty and and uh, Zumi and stuff will kind of drop into, and the whole thing we're kind of taking a little bit from improvise music and a little bit from jazz stuff of like how do you find your way in and how do you find your way out mm. and you know not to get too wanky about it but like it is kind of a metaphor i suppose for the situation we've been in and what happens next so yeah they're going in blind and um i know david kidd is like super duper excited because he's just like you know to be given an opportunity to just improvise with synths and electronics on stage with with loads of talented musicians and and just see what happens um, and what, you know, nobody knows. So, so it's kind of, it is very much speaking to that kind of uncertainty and uh, 
you know, taking a chance and, and just saying, okay, well, you know, if, if, if everything is up in the air, what happens when you just step this way or that way or, or grab onto this? So that's what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. So that's on Sunday at eight o'clock and tickets are 15 quid. Um, so in, in a broader sense, then the idea of, you know, what imagining what we could be striving for, what we should be striving for, you know, you talk about new models for ourselves and art and society. And obviously there's been a lot of things that we, we need, we have needed to look at for a long time. So say, you know, the uh, gender balance of, uh, and the inclusivity of, of lineups uh, around gigs and festivals, a safe spaces at clubs as well. Another idea. Um, and whether, I guess I'm wondering whether anyone has really been considering those kind of, broader things that you know of in terms of what how when they come back because this is a unique time we've had for the promoters and venues that are coming back and doing things it's their opportunity to kind of rethink how they were doing it like guidelines for how to be in this space as opposed to you know you can't do this can't do that can't do, you know you know what i mean so yeah. those kind of ideas i think are interesting because it is that opportunity now to reset and 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 take that into the future yeah, I mean, really interesting thing that I found is is live culture, for the most part, stopped uh, happening, you know, in spaces um, almost everywhere. And some of it is back and some of it isn't and blah, blah, blah. But like time still passed and the consciousness still raised in different ways, you know, in revolutionary ways with Black Lives Matter movement globally, for example. So loads of stuff politically philosophically um intellectually socially was still happening but how we could see that change happen in you know trends let's say or or new things in uh live cultural spaces we couldn't we couldn't see it so it'll be interesting to see whether something new or new ways drop in and i think they will because i think it, well, I think it, they will in some cases. I think if you're completely commercially minded and that you your entire kind of predicated, you know, job is predicated on like selling tickets and making profit and um, getting loads of people to the show and everyone being safe, you know, which is a perfectly valid way um, to to operate in the industry, then you're probably going to be focused on that and just hoping that the thing goes well and that nobody, you know, gets COVID <laughs> mm. basically. And, but I do think that other people um, who are maybe approach things in a way that is more like a little more holistically or maybe a little more in tune with the politics of the day or or the culture of the day, of course, they're going to be thinking about different things. I mean, this is I mean, I, I wouldn't have been a co-curated shows like this three years ago. You know, like so or two years ago or whatever, like so, of course, people are considering different things and different criterias. And there's a generational shift that is not like a generation that is less interested, I think, in accepting the edge, the, you know, fucking creepiness in clubs or, or the or an edge that is unpleasant. And, you know, my generation t had to accept that if they went out to particular on particular streets in Dublin or whatever, and you went into particular places, you would literally be physically assaulted. You know, you you would have your ass slapped or whatever. You know that that is just kind of gone. You know, mm -hmm. and, and for some people, they view 
you know, this kind of like sanitization of uh, transgression in particular places. I don't think that's the case. I think people are, you know, younger people are formulating how they want to be in a place within the culture and within their values that they have. And that is perfectly acceptable to me. In fact, it's much more pleasant um, than an awful lot of the, the places that, you know, were, t- were, were completely grand or known for being, you know, a bit, you know, a bit like unpleasant to go, to go out in. So, but at the same time, like I want underground and I want edge and I want fringe and I want something different. Um, and I think that certain, you know, club nights were already doing uh, stuff like that, like grace in Dublin, for example, and places were kind of coming up. Yeah. With guidelines or, you know, philosophies for their space. That mm. if you come in here, it's not about like you can't do this, you can't do that, but it's like consider how you're gonna, yeah, how you're gonna be, you know. Um, so I think that, and I think Mother has also kind of led on that often. So I think that those things will drop in. I mean, I think it'll also be about people thinking about their own behavior because it'll be about and and not related to loads of things, m- mostly related to. Am I going to last the night? Will I be uncomfortable? Is this overwhelming? Do I feel too nervous? Have I had my fill of human interaction in this last hour and now I'm actually kind of spent? I think that is a thing because I know myself when the majority of your social interaction goes as it has done for most people over the past 18, 19 months, when the drop back in, it's not that I found it particularly overwhelming, but it was just like, if I met two people in two different occasions during the day, that was enough for me. If I was going to one film or one socially distanced play or one, that was enough. Like the era for me of, oh, oh yeah, I'm just going out and going to like for drinks, a play, a gig, a club night and a party. (laughs) I think that that, that level, that, that pace, first of all, was detrimental but also the lack of space between being able to like digest the art or the experience feels more vital now that everything was taken away and all you had was a space between uh of course that space was sometimes depressing and lonely and all of those kind of things but it also did offer time to think and reflect and i think that maybe people may not now they may kind of be really enthusiastic about going out loads uh in this in this particular phase but i think a lot of people might be taking stock about the pace that they were doing everything at and that includes socializing yeah oh i totally understand that and certainly andrea who's normally uh co-host in the podcast we can't be here this week is uh, one of those people who's uh, articulated those concerns about you know moving into back into the world and and being in a social situation again um where i am much more open to it now and i'm ready for that to happen um obviously you're talking about going from zero to 100 there but what i was going to say earlier on actually was actually about being in those spaces and and then allowing your brain the time to because one of my favorite things to actually do and I only thought about this I was only thinking about it because it wasn't there is when you were actually at a gig and mm. you know you were paying attention but but those the music or the art that you're experiencing is actually triggering um you know ideas and thought patterns for you that are actually 
super beneficial for your mental health. Right. That's what the uh, what I was listening to the a man called uh, Magan uh, Almanac of Ireland podcast was talking about like your brain fires and these uh, thoughts and ideas, and it's a it's a default mode that actually is very very good for your mental health. And that's you know, pers- it was really helpful for me to be able to identify that. Um, and that's what I miss, and that's what I actively miss. I miss that experience as well as the the internal experience as well as the um social aspect of that so i'm really i'm missing that you know just like you sometimes you find your mind wandering uh if you're at an event and you sometimes it wanders to an interesting place and then you come back afterwards you're like whoa i'm I'm actually thinking about something in a very different way now because i've experienced that even though it's yeah it's like a two-pronged thing you're experiencing it but also internalizing it and then it leads you to somewhere else and yeah, I think that's the thing for me. I'm really I'm missing at the moment, but certainly <laughs> I feel like I want, <laughs> I certainly want one of those nights where I go to five things in a row. Um, but I understand that as well. And I think, you know, there's an age thing there as well. First of all, there's a lot of people, um, younger people who have not experienced that in the same way that we have over the years. We've been very lucky to um, because of their age and not being old enough, first of all, to be able to go to nightclubs or, or whatever it is um, to regular gigs. And then there's the other aspect of it is the people who are getting older and going to less things anyway that would have happened Mm. regardless so like i'm 39 now a lot of people i know had stopped going to gigs already so you know the pandemic wouldn't have changed that at all so i think that's also an interesting thing to see to think about that you know obviously yeah everyone i talk to is you know most people i talk to are like can't wait to get back to gigs there's also plenty of people i know who are no interest in going to any gigs at all because their priorities have changed I haven't thought about that, um, like that aging, that part of the aging part during the pandemic, because obviously one part of the aging part is that you just like sit on your couch and go two years of my life, two years <laughs> of my life taken from, and which is so stupid because the point of this era is to survive, you know, and, yeah. and like if, if they're not, you know, this, this isn't going to be two years taken away. Like these are your two fucking years. There are two years in your life. And so you have to live in them, you know, even though that can be really hard. But um, I hadn't thought about the age aging part as like, I think what you're kind of describing there is people kind of aging out a particular pace or style of socializing and like loads of my mates, just the way the cookie crumbles, you know, a good few of them happen to have children, their second or third or first child during the pandemic as well. Mm. So, you know, that how that state of parenthood, new parenthood interacts with quote unquote the real world has yet to be realized because mm. the real world hasn't really existed. So that'll be interesting. Um but yeah, and I I I you know, I whatever by people in like us in their in our 30s, you know, I really 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 feel for people, particularly in their late teens and early twenties, because for me, if I was like 17, 18, 19 or whatever, like this period was a really, really crucial period for going clubbing and going to gigs and, and running around town and stuff. So I really, really feel for people who, who've had that little, you know, that little period of time kind of, uh, taken out of their trajectory i'm also like very much in favor of reverting to our 2019 ages uh, as a as like a policy (laughs) so (laughs) i mean it is funny when you see people and you're like of course they look 18 months older than they did when you saw them that's a trip but on the 
like that thing around um, how live art does different things. Like I've thought about this so much because, you know, yourself, like as you describe, like you like ideas come to you and, and inspiration comes to you. And it's the same as walking around a gallery or being at a play. And sometimes it can be related to um, the art that you're witnessing or that's interesting. And that reminds me of this. And maybe that's an idea. And sometimes it's totally not like you're literally watching mm. something that's just so interesting that another idea completely drops into your head. And I think with live music in particular, it it ha- it has that tension when you're an audience member of like the sympathetic nervous system being met with the parasympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic nervous system being, you know, the kind of rest and digest mode and the sympathetic being fight or flight. So you have this meditative state where you can actually not talk, stand there and take something in, but then also you're kind of being met with this bombardment of sound and, and light and sound waves and all that kind of stuff. So it's these two things. I'm not a, neuroscientist obviously but like it it seems to me that that you know so much of our of how we experience the world obviously relates to our nervous system and it seems that those two things in conflict is where these little like this little um you know magic sparkle dust kind of bursts in your brain and and where ideas land um and it's hard like I, you can get that with film as well but there's something about being present obviously in the room that that does change that that uh, experience. Although I watched the Velvet Underground documentary the other night, um, which you can get on if you're on Apple TV, directed by Todd Haynes and produced by Christine Vachon. I don't know if you've spoken about it already. No, I haven't, I haven't seen it. No, it is so good and it is so well made and so brilliant that it like I was watching it and I just started getting loads of ideas about loads of random shit, like different writing projects, nothing to do with uh, Lou Reed and co but it was it was that thing of like oh this is just like really good art like where the form is fitting the subject and it has all these like Warholisms and kind of non-linear uh, kind of you know suppose structured about the band and and also it fundamentally starts with the sound and and, and where that sound physically comes from in terms of um john kale's background and lee reed's background and so on so it is it's it's interesting when something again hones in on that visceral experience that's really rooted in physics uh as so much live music is like how you that's literally how you're experiencing it i really experienced that with that documentary as well so if people haven't watched that i'd really recommend it great I must check that out. Um, on a wider scale, then, or maybe back to a more local scale, a lot of what you talk about with Andrea on your uh, United Ireland podcast is about, you know, issues around um, culture. And, um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of things going on in terms of, well, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things about, a lot of news about what could be possibly happening and around so stuff like the cobblestone, obviously. We've so, we've seen a um, the Merchant's Arch as well. Obviously, we were talking about you, you talking about about clubbing as culture as well. I think generally, do you think we're seeing a lot of 
a disconnection between a, a greater disconnection between politics and and the people now because people have had time to reimagine or rethink about what they their priorities are and do you think that you know is there any way we can stop the kind of um you know constant barrage of hotel developments that are 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 stopping us from uh from experiencing that or may stop us from experiencing those that culture in the future um small question no, yeah. <laughs> no no it's it's uh okay so i think loads of things about this first of all i feel even though it can feel like in dublin in particular obviously it's not unique to dublin plenty of other irish cities are experiencing this as well it can be incredibly um you know it can create a, a huge amount of despondency when you feel like you're living in a neoliberal hellscape with the people in charge of the city either locally or nationally in central government being just like, oh my God, they don't get it. And who are these people? And I can't relate to them. And all of this shit is happening that I hate. And like, there's an ugliness to this kind of, you know, capitalist slime mold that's kind of spreading all over the city. So, however, I think that this is actually a very, very positive and optimistic moment and a moment of huge potential. That may sound kind of contradictory, but I've been writing about the corporate gentrification and the various aspects of the housing crisis in uh, particularly among students and stuff like that for like a decade, like as well as writing about at that time, the boom in recession era culture and, and spaces that became available because of the property crash and the general economic crash of the country. And it is literally in the last couple of weeks that this seems to have finally connected with the larger kind of establishment um, thought and narrative. So like in the last couple of weeks, there was a really good piece on RTE, on Claire Byrne and Radio 1 last Friday about the cobblestone, about hotel development uh, that Andrea contributed to as well. Um, there was stuff in the Sunday Times this weekend. There was stuff that I was writing and, and other people were writing in the Irish Times at the weekend. There was stuff in the Business Post. And there was like, I think the Indo podcast had like, our hotels, are there too many hotels or something? So like, it finally seems to be connecting in the consciousness beyond those who've been talking about it in club land and in DIY culture land and, and fringe culture land and all that kind of stuff. So that is really, really positive that the consciousness has raised to that degree. Unfortunately, the reason that has happened is because the issues have become so profound. And it is frustrating, but very familiar, that when you actually raise issues around this kind of stuff before they hit the mainstream, you're told, oh, that's a thing that has happened in a vacuum or a silo and shut up. And I think that a lot of that discourse was really notable around people shading, people giving out about the uh, closure of the Bernard Shaw, whenever that was, a couple of years ago. And there was no understanding in the broader mainstream of like, okay, you may not give a shit about this particular pub or you may not give a shit about the Tivoli or you may not give a shit about Hangar or you may not give a shit about the endless amount of artist studios that are shut down or Block T or Jigsaw or whatever. But people need to understand that those things are not just like things that are susceptible to change or temporary entities. They're the canary in the mind for the broader thing. So what you see now is people in the suburbs 
and um, people who are less connected to participating or making culture, but are maybe kind of audiences of other things in the mainstream, really, really going, oh shit, hang on a second, that entire street has been knocked down. Oh my God, the Ledgerplex in Slorgan was knocked down. Hang on a second, they're knocking one of my favorite suburban pubs. Oh my God, should they really be building this like, you know, um, build to rent apartment blocks on my son's football pitches or whatever? So like that kind of thing, it is obviously like we need to pay attention to the aspects of urban culture that are more vulnerable because those are the things that alert us to a process of change that is detrimental and that will ultimately be detrimental to all of the culture, even, you know, your favorite restaurant or the place you go to the cinema or whatever. So the problem is really, really big, but and, but and, and, and as a result, it has caused the discourse to actually understand it. And also it's happening because it has gone too far. So how do you actually stop this shit from happening? One of the things that I think people are going to have a real wake up call with over the next year is the amount of Dublin city that has been sold off and is under development. And maybe people haven't been in town that much. Maybe they're not, they're working from home or they're not going into obviously pubs and clubs and things like that, or they've moved away or they're just not really seeing, but like, there is an enormous amount of corporate development still ongoing. There's like 20 hotels and pipeline or something like that. The central bank is going to up, open up on um, Dame Street, which is a huge thing that is going to really, really change the fabric of that area. Um, I, I presume they're still set on their seven or nine floors of WeWork uh, and a Krispy Kreme at the bottom and a, and a kind of a global brand hotel at the top. Uh, that doesn't appeal to me, whatever. Um, and also the Cleary's developments, press-ups developments on uh, O'Connell Street. And also the planning is currently being figured out. Um, Dublin City Council have, have, have told the, the, peop- the UK developers who are doing kind of the Moore Street Carlton site that they want a certain amount of things. That, that development, by the way, includes knocking um, at least a few buildings on, on Henry Street and, and there's also the hoo-ha about commemorating 1916 mm, yeah. on, on Moore Street. So when you, there's that, there's also Capel Street, um, the back of which and the warehouses that go into the markets area and so on. Um, a lot of that has already been earmarked for development if it's not already ongoing and the same up around um, Little Green Street and stuff like that. And obviously Smithfield. And obviously you know, then you go further into Dublin 7, the massive Devonese development uh, in Stony Batter on one side. Of, and then the, on the other side, there's this um, proposal to knock down the uh, shopping centre on, on Prussia Street and build student accommodation and, and uh, build to build to rent apartments and stuff. So there is a tremendous amount of development ongoing and none of it is cultural. <laughs> And at the same time, obviously, we know that the venues um, are under huge pressure financially and that, you know, ones have closed and there isn't even a purpose built nightclub in the city and blah, blah, blah. So, like, it's going to. OK, this sounds really negative, like it is visibly going to get worse when people realize 
what is actually going on when the scaffolding comes down. Mm. It's also too late in many ways to to reverse certain development in certain areas without getting involved as people should do in various planning objections and engaging with the planning system and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, for the first time uh, in a while, apart from the um, take back the city movement that coalesced around um, occupations in the in the around Summer Hill and a couple of illegal evictions actually that happened during the pandemic as well. It has been a long time since I've actually felt an energy coalescing on the streets that is going to actually do something about this. Mm. And I think that that's why the movement around the cobblestone and merchant's arch is so important. It's important because it is the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. It's important because these are things that people really, really value. And it's important because people showed up at that protest key but also one of the things that's really important about about it is because people have gone from this mix of anger and despondency that is really hard to act from and and like that's how these kind of systems work like they work to paralyze people to atomize people to make you feel like there is no viable opposition and but that has moved into action yeah and that's really really important and in some ways the pandemic even though it, there's a, it has stalled so much of the realizations about what's happening in the city because the city hasn't been functioning. It is effectively in a state of cultural collapse. But it also gave people time to think. It also rallied people into realizing that they had to campaign for basic services, yeah. as we saw on Capel Street and public toilets and Portobello and all that kind of stuff. So people are know who is running the city in terms of Owen Keegan and officials in WC Council. People are engaged with, um, you know, communicating to local government their dissatisfaction, which we know around the submissions around the uh, pedestrianisation trial for Capel Street. People will actually show up and protest the potential, um, you know, vandalism, effectively, cultural vandalism of places such as Cobblestone and Merchant's Arch. Yeah. So people, that is really, really, really fucking important. And it actually doesn't matter. Like there were loads, I thought there were loads of people at the cobblestone thing for what it was, mm. like for what that actual thing was. And it doesn't, but it, and there were not that many people at the student protest I was at the other day with regards to the, the own Keegan letter and stuff like that. It kind of doesn't matter that there aren't, people have been like for ages, for years, let's remember pre-pandemic how fucked the capital was you know, and how fucked the housing crisis was. And people are just, when is the housing movement going to happen? When is the housing movement going to, when are they going to be? It's like, people have to realise that just because it's just a smattering of people turning up now, large smattering in terms of the cobblestone, that's okay, as long as it has momentum. Yeah. So when people talk about the housing movement and where it is and who it is, or the, the which is obviously it's all connected to um, the issue around cultural spaces in the city. Like you're the housing movement. Everyone listening, everyone thinking about it has the capacity to show up at a protest or make some kind of creative intervention that is a form of, you know, articulating their dissatisfaction or a form of activism. And that will coalesce. It will. Like it, it has gone too far. The pressure of the housing crisis linked with the dissatisfaction around services and culture in the city 
has really gone too far. And I think that we're going to see um, a movement in opposition to the to specific things that are being done, like around the cobblestone. And also more broadly, just a feeling that this is not the direction that we want things going into. It's really yeah. difficult to protest an ideology or a system. Mm. It, you do, unfortunately, need these kind of catalyst events that people can hang their hat on that are quite tangible. So the Cobblestone Emergence Arch, of course, they're about the places, but they're about something much bigger. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where, you know, people just like sick of it, you know, just really, really sick of it are, are going to have to start showing up. If people start showing up really, really and truly with everything, you see a, a thing like the students are doing something or mm. a venue is doing something. If people start showing up, it is not going to stop. Yeah, if you look at like Katu, for example, as a as an example of a mobilization of of a small group of people over around a central issue that can be quite hard to get your get the grips on. But having that kind of peep those crews of people uh, gathered together in order to be able to enact change on things is another example. Or what's been happening where I live near with the with the player Wills factory and and all of that kind of stuff and the mobilization of a network of uh, locals who are um you know uh pushing back against the development there and 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 successfully getting themselves heard despite the significant financial and uh logistical difficulties of of doing that process that is very very difficult and it probably also like in terms of the city stuff it's certainly i think it actually does help when you have (laughs) essentially an evil boss at the center of it, of it all with Owen Keegan and, and, and saying those kind of outlandish and ridiculous things and you're like oh my god you know that's what I mean about the disconnect between what's happening on the ground and and, and the policies it really yeah, does a, articulate there's prof- that there's a profound disconnect like there's a profound profound disconnect with people who are exerting a particular ideology who are in positions of political power and in positions of power in public life and the people, whatever you want to say that. But I don't think it's really about the people. I think it's about the culture. And the issue that this is getting very um, prime time or whatever, <laughs> but the issue that that the people who hold political power currently in this country have is that they are part of a culture that has passed. And what has happened in the meantime is that Irish culture has changed. The reason Irish culture has, I mean, social culture, the reason the culture has changed and the way we are has changed is because we have changed. We have changed internally. And that change is obviously, you know, manifest in the referendums and it's manifest in like people, you know, the shift to the left, the electorate, which is totally underreported and all that kind of stuff. But that disconnect is so fucking profound. And like, this is going to be the main driving force in Irish society taking in politics and Irish culture in terms of how we relate to one another in over the next decade, let's say, because in order to actually maintain power and in order to be popular and in order to get a mandate effectively to do what you are meant to do to serve the public, you do have to be in tune with people's needs and desires. And if you're actually in tune with something completely different in the case of political power currently in this country, with global capital and with a vista uh, of society that is just kind of ignorant and not very sophisticated and also doesn't care about vast tracts of people, for example, poor people, um, 
that that you will you won't be able to actually maintain if the broader dominant culture which has manifest itself in social change is the is at odds with you so like it's like the culture that our generation emerged from was actually not the mainstream like when i was kind of um you know, you know, I talk about it. It's not important that small amounts of people turn up to a protest. Like the first marriage quality protests were fucking tiny. There was literally handfuls of people there. And I mean that like there was one one that was meant to be kind of bigger, bigger demo. I remember at Central Bank and there was like 20 something people there. And like. That it was very obvious to me that the values that myself and my peers and my community had were at odds with the political culture at the time and actually at odds with mainstream culture at the time, with people, with, mm. you know, with everyone, with the majority of people who lived in the society. But because people changed that culture that we emerged from, which is a culture around a around equity, around women's rights, around queer people's rights and around, um, I suppose uh, uh, being spurned so so deeply by capitalism from the economic crash and the recession, the austerity that followed, and developing a different value system that kind of now manifests itself as this non-problematic nationalism in a way, and uh, like a kind of a non-sectarian pride and an embracing of Irish identity that is not regressive, right? Like the reclamation of uh, the aesthetic. You can see it in in graphic design and in apparel making and all this kind of stuff. Like it is there. There is mm -hmm. this weird fucking Celtic revival thing happening. We also see it extremely um, uh, vibrant in music and in literature and in spoken word and poetry and all that kind of stuff. So like, but that uh, that only became the culture. And the thing is, with the political power bit, they're still operating. In a, in in a kind of a bubble, and their own echo chamber, where they're doing like '90s politics, mm. and they're doing like new labor stuff, like Blairite kind of stuff. You know, even Leo Varadkar says that one of the politicians he admires the most is Tony Blair. So they're operating in this quite old-fashioned, regressive thing that they think is, you know, dynamic and innovative. <laughs> but what they haven't kind of grasped is that the broader desires of people have changed and you know Fianna Fáil used to be very 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 in touch with people's desires and needs and wants that's why they were so popular for ages and they were made more popular as Fine Gael were because the dynamic in the state for so long was this hand in glove with the Catholic Church so they were and, and, and everybody was Catholic you know, and every, people, everybody went to mass. So like the, the culture and the political power and the power structures that kind of moved political power around re religiosity were, were kind of all together. But now there's been a split and now you have the relics of that trying to kind of uh, play dress, cosplay themselves as in tune, which is why you have this ridiculous kind of you know, content making from both of the parties and also using the social movements to kind of shroud themselves with the veneer to t sell back to people as progress while not changing the economic systems that really fuck people and the class systems and all that. So they, they've, they're kind of like in this like 
little like Wayne coin fucking bubble floating over the crowd, you know, at Forbidden Fruit kind of vibe <laughs> and going, everything's fine, right? I'm on top. But what they're not noticing is that like the entire first 300 rows are totally different people. And and that's why that's why we're at a time of like tremendous change. And if people grasp the power that they have by mobilizing in small and big ways, that that political power will collapse because it, it, it just is so fragile. And, you know, it has already collapsed in many ways because the two people who had the stranglehold on that power had to go into coalition government, which was just, you know, unthinkable. So that will, I'm not a fan of any polit- political party, don't endorse any political party, whatever. They're not really my thing. But that piece of power that has been fucking our lives for the past decade, particularly with Fine Gael, in terms of the neoliberalism and the selling off of the city and all of that kind of stuff, and the crappy development and the reliance on global capital and the disregard for community and all this kind of stuff, that is going to go if people say and show they want it gone because it doesn't make sense for the country that we are. Yeah. And like what you're saying there about, you know, the Irish identity and culture specifically being like reclaimed as well. You're seeing that as well. And that's part of like, you know, the cobblestone is a traditional pub and that is one of the aspects of it. But also in in tandem with that, like, for example, like a lot of very new young voices in trad music um, making themselves felt heard and uh, changing that culture as well. So I just see that, you know, we are it is. And that's really interesting that we are you know, kind of looking back and reclaiming that from our, for ourselves. And, and 100%. And it's a, con- it's a confidence because when I was in my like teens and 20s, like people didn't care about Irish culture. It was just not a fucking thing. I was in, into it because I was in an all Irish school and trad was like, if you were the best Byron player in the school, then you were the coolest person in the school. Do you know what I mean? I know, understand that that's a unique experience for a lot of people in Dublin or whatever. But like nobody gave a shit about it. It was lame. The aesthetic, the characters, the people, the legacy. It was lame. The Celtic Tiger and it's like banana town consumer bit consumerist boom and all that kind of stuff kind of like wrecked a lot of that stuff. And or at least it pushed it away into the shadows. But like the thing is, culture, what is mainstream comes from the fringe and what is given the spotlight was in the shadows. And you have this like vast swathes of younger people who didn't grow up with the hang ups that their parents and their older siblings did, who actually think, shit, I wish I did speak Irish, who like you go to a Lancome gig or a gloaming show and you'll get this like massively diverse group of group of ages. You go to the cobblestone or you go to that protest. It's not a load of, you know, Wow, this is so derogatory and ageist, but like people would assume, oh, it's a load of alphalas or whatever. Like it's not like people really care about this shit. And when you look at how, you know, in or- like culture moves politics, that's like the, the thing that, that a lot of the political establishment, the media establishment don't get. If you want to gauge the temperature of where we're going to be at in a couple of years, listen to what the rappers are saying, read what the poetry is go to a spoken word night listen to the records because you'll get in that the discontention that is bubbling up that is going to change shit you know and when you when like i think it's what i find incredible about it, apart from the reclamation of the irish accent 
uh, in music, like the biggest Irish band arguably right now is Fontaine's. Obviously very pronounced accent there. Like the biggest band, you know, 30 years ago, whatever, was U2. Obviously Bono sounds American. You know, like even like really simple ships like mm. that. And when you look at, you know, immigration has a massive role in it because you have this uh, new blended identity that is emerging up that is not that is really complex, but it's also not complicated because it's like this 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 place and its legacy and its culture is not something to be ashamed of or to be slagged off. And I think that confidence gets really confused by people, for example, who hate republicanism or hate Sinn Féin or whatever, because they see it as this like Trumpian fucking swag. Like, that's not what it is. It's actually people who were really, really scarred by the austerity and by the recession. And at the same time, kind of weirdly buoyed by all the rhetoric that happened around the uh, 1916 centenary in 2016, when basically every single person and every single news program and every single you know talking event was like, what kind of republic do we want to be? What kind of republic do we want to be? Who are we? What would they have thought in 1916? Like all of that shit feeds in mm. to people's consciousness. And then they go, yeah, actually, maybe we should kind of actually look at what we have and reclaim some of what we have. Like you mentioned Man- Manco McGann's book. That book is like the most talked about, or, or his podcast. That book, 32 Words for Field, is like the most talked about book in this country. And it's about like Irish words that said something about our emotional interiors, about our connection to the land and about spirituality. Like that book would not, would not like the reason it's popular is because people are fucking interested in it. Yeah. And they want something to hang their hat on uh, uh, that, that roots ourselves to a sense, not just of place and of, and of now, but of the future. Because the, the previous things that we were told to hang our hat on were oppression Mm. and repression and you know so so these are profound profound changes that are happening in this country and and they will continue to manifest and and that is why you know when people look at the systems that are rolling over the city or the systems that are in the doll or the systems that are in dublin city council or whatever and if it feels like who the fuck are these people and like why are they doing stuff that i hate so much and that all my friends hate so much it's because that 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 is going to go away, not because that is going to be the way it is forever. Well, I like that. I liked. Uh, I like that idea of uh, you know that's what it is. And I would say as well, like I mean, Brexit has obviously uh, set uh, our nearest neighbours apart from ourselves in terms of yeah. you know we used to follow what they were doing uh, in a general sense, but now it's like it's very clear for everybody is that we are we are we are separate to them, and we are we are we are reclaiming that in a way. And I think that's. Yeah, well, really I think we're separate to English nationalism. I mean, I don't think we're we're like. I mean, you know, the the biggest um, immigrant community in Ireland is is uh, people from the UK. Yeah. You know, so I think that like I do feel, and I mean, I have you know an English person in my my family, like, and loads of people do. And I and at the same time, I absolutely hate the English state. You know, like the in terms of its you know its colonialist legacy and and how it perpetrates this cruelty on on its people you know and how mm. it's col- it's colonizing itself you know which is like this boomerang um but like yes that sets us apart but i don't think that irishness is predicated on how different we are to other people i think it was in the past and i think now people are actually mining something different 
And it's just so interesting to me that so many of the things that were deemed like cringe or unfashionable are re-entering the visual lexicon and re-entering like even design and stuff like that. You know, you've you've been championing Enya, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm here for you for that because she's a genius. She's our Kate Bush. Yeah. But like even stuff like Peg or like these little like, you know, these random people on Instagram making these T-shirts and like all this kind of Celtic and uh, uh, like Celtic graphic design is entering into our visual language. Like that just did not exist when I was in my teens or in my twenties. Um, And people are, people are digging what our spirituality was around everything from, you know, the Celtic calendar to like what our festivals were actually about. Like there's a massive re-engagement with that. And, and that is that kind of thing is, is so rich and it's also intrinsically linked to the fact that one of the reasons that it was we were made feel guilt and shame around it is because of the legacy of colonialism and Mm. and you know all of that is coming through the music i mean it's all coming through the music from the kind of boom and trot or folk stuff it's especially coming up through hip-hop you know and uh and rock as well you know it's about place people aspirations and i think when you can relate much more to something that you're hearing on, you know, Town's Dead or something than something that you're hearing in the doll, then you know who actually is in power. And and the cultural shift is something that's going to move the political shift in a really radical way. Uh, Una, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to uh, ushering in a new era of utopia very soon, starting this Friday. <laughs> starting this week. <laughs> yeah, this week. <laughs> nch.ie for all your tickets. Thanks, Niall. <laughs> Thanks, Una. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.